Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Leo Hoffmann-Hagstam. Leo is a research and advocacy coordinator working on European Union institutions for Transparency International and he also winner of a Nobel Prize, something that we do discuss during this podcast. And after our conversation, I will introduce you to some of the events organized by ELF for this last week of September. I'm here with Leo Hoffman-Haxton. Leo, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ricardo. Yes, and I'm looking forward for our conversation. This is a very important topic about transparency and your work you do uh, regarding uh, European Union uh, organizations and institutions. But first, tell us a little bit about you to our audience. What path you took to get to the position where you are now? So I joined Transparency International about uh, four years ago in uh, the EU office here in Brussels, where I joined in order to coordinate a program on Eurozone governance. So we were doing uh, studies on the transparency, the democratic accountability, and the integrity of uh, Eurozone governance institutions like the European Central Bank, the European Stability Mechanism, or the Eurogroup. Uh, and then uh, we moved on now to also analyze the, the um, well, basically the key EU institutions, the European Parliament, uh, Council of the EU, and the European Commission. Before joining Transparency International, I uh, also had a separate uh, life, a separate career um, in nuclear disarmament, where I founded the office in Germany, the German branch of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons about six years ago. Uh, and then after setting up that office, um, went on to study at the College of Europe in uh, Bruges, came to Brussels, worked at the European Commission for uh, a bit less than two years, and then came back into civil society. So back from uh, government service, uh, back into civil society, working for Transparency International. So Transparency International uh, was... Um, happy to uh, tolerate my second life in nuclear disarmament, <laughs> uh, which in the end, in hindsight, was a good decision, given that in 2017, uh, our work on nuclear disarmament was rewarded with the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, which didn't come entirely out of the blue, because we had been working for a number of years with uh, countries around the world to uh, really promote the idea of a new treaty at the United Nations level prohibiting nuclear weapons. And that was indeed an idea that, that we had come up with, that we were ridiculed for at the beginning, and that then really attracted the attention of two-thirds of the world community, uh, who then actually came together, negotiated a treaty, adopted it at the UN in New York. And then a few months later, after we had basically achieved everything we were hoping for, uh, as a as a icing on the cake, we, we were even recognized for our role in this process with the Nobel Peace Prize. So that was, of course, quite the, the life-changing um, event to happen and uh, that did also mean that I had to spend a little bit more time uh, on, on the side project but again uh, that, that was very easily compatible with, with um, working for Transparency International given that these are two completely separate topics and so you wouldn't have any conflicts of interest or, or get into each other's way. 
ask you to share a little more about that in a minute. But before that, did you see yourself as you were going through your process working this area, transparency? Was this something that you always paid attention or you had to go like really fast into it? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question because actually, first of all, I was working just on disarmament. I uh, was first working for the Republic of Nauru, a tiny Pacific island nation. Uh, I was their disarmament representative at the United Nations in New York. And then I went into civil society. Then I studied again. And I really only got into EU affairs uh, because back when I was studying the Eurozone crisis, was really uh, blowing up and was being, in my view, quite badly managed. And so uh, focusing on that also in my further studies was a bit due to incredulity that we wouldn't find a better way of addressing these obvious problems. And so, of course, you start, start out wondering, how is it that we can't have like a frank, open conversation about the best solutions? And then quite quickly, you stumble across you know, the, the uh, political and legal mechanisms that make sure that there's no, not enough transparency in the decisions taken, there's not enough democratic control about who takes those decisions. And this is actually the main stumbling block in coming to a proper EU-wide approach that would be uh, more manageable for, uh, not just for the southern countries like uh, Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece and so on, but also for countries uh, in the north. So also Germany would benefit more if they invested more in education, if they invested more in the infrastructure. So there's a lot of things going badly in the Eurozone governance. And um, then I worked at the European Commission for the Director General in uh, DG ECFIN, uh, and then later uh, in, in the Joint Research Center of the European Commission. And there too, it was fairly obvious that, uh, you know, there's, there's a number of things that are being managed so that they just about keep afloat in the Eurozone. But the, the underlying problems, also the governance issues, uh, there's this hybrid structure between you know, supranational institutions, but then national competencies where the member states really don't want to give away uh, their, their legal prerogatives. This, this messy uh, governance structure that was improvised in the middle of the crisis, that really comes back to, to haunt the Eurozone. And so it was clear to me that we really had to focus on this institutional uh, issues, uh, on increasing transparency, on having a more direct democratic accountability so that political institutions are also forced to act more in accordance with the interests of citizens and therefore also create better policy outcomes. Well, I'm sure happy there are people like you that notice these problems and you know, focuses on them and try to come up with solutions. That is, you and do get an opportunity to do so, eh? So that that was yes. really uh, that was really two things coming together. There, Transparency International, that they suddenly developed an interest in eurozone institutions, and and for me that was really the perfect moment to to uh, bring this work forward. And now we hope to to do the same uh, kind of analysis also on the European Commission, European Parliament, Council of the EU, in order to uh, do our contribution to uh, further democratize um, the decision making and also legislative decision making of EU institutions. Yes, and for our listeners, I saw Leo on a talk in Brussels, and I can tell you that we're in good hands. Now we need a couple more minutes because I won't able to live with myself if I don't ask you this and now a moment of personal privilege because this is the first time I talk with someone that won the Nobel Prize. 
So tell us, how, tell us what that means. Tell us uh, how did it make you feel? Um, yeah, that, that was a rather emotional um, roller coaster, I would say. Uh, basically, I was uh, arriving a bit late to the office. Uh, was of course we didn't know what was going to happen. We knew that we were nominated for the prize, but uh, personally, I wouldn't have put uh, the likelihood that more than 20 or 30 percent. So we didn't even prepare a press release, nothing like that. I just sort of had time to switch on the YouTube live stream. Uh, I was still messing with the with the audio settings when suddenly I hear the name of our NGO and sort of stand up and announce it to the to the entire office, uh, which was a, a really uh, awkward. Uh, moment because because you just can't really believe it can you know and then the reality very quickly sinks in like suddenly the phones are buzzing all the journalists want to speak to you you're, you're kind of uh next thing you know you're canceling all of your trips and, and flights for that uh, weekend <laughs> and trying to really uh, uh make a schedule of of uh, getting all of those interviews out so as to also maximize the the opportunity of getting our talking points out there because we're not getting this this prize just for the sake of it we actually want the citizens of Europe to know that the EU member states are boycotting the prohibition of nuclear weapons and that you know if all of these foreign ministers claim they want nuclear disarmament but then at the same time don't are not even willing to prohibit them under international law then maybe they're just lying Yes. Well, I'm sure it was worth the sacrifice of putting your weekend plans on hold. Now, but Definitely. I do have you here to talk about the work you do with Transparency International. And we go, we're going to go into a couple of questions of detail. And that is, I need you first to describe what you mean by state capture to our listeners, because you do advocate for the necessity of lobbying and transparency in avoiding state capture. So let's start with the end. What is state capture and why it is important to have transparency uh, on this particular point? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way of framing it because um, what's often misunderstood about lobbying, uh, you know, this such a shady term already, um, is that of course, what we want is not just democracy where every five years you uh, cast your vote and then your duty is done, but basically we need participative democracy. So we need all kinds of ways for uh, citizens, NGOs, academics, think tanks, but also for companies, also for corporates to be able to participate in the democratic process, uh, because only if we get the input of people that are actually active on the ground implementing uh, laws and having to abide by the rules, only then can we uh, have laws that, you know, have the best impact and, and really serve the uh, interests of the, the citizens. Having said that, if you don't have enough transparency about the process of lobbying, then there's very predictable things that will happen, which is that the people with most money and that also stand to gain the most money, so people with very specific private interests mm -hmm. are the ones who are most willing to uh, spend money and, uh, and employ professional lobbyists in order to advance this or that political goal. And so we need all kinds of, you know, uh, codes of conduct, lobby uh, registers. We need all kinds of rules about how to do lobbying so that citizens can see where specific ideas, amendments, laws, uh, and so on come from. And so that we have the requisite uh, balance of, of uh, power whereby the, the parliamentarians know that, yes, of course, they can help this or that company uh, in this or that field in order to protect, let's say, a few thousand jobs in their constituency, but they can only do it if they think that citizens, if they see it, 
are going to say, oh, yeah, that's a good judgment call. I would agree with that. Because if they're selling out the state, if they're really just doing a favor to the lobbyists of, let's say, the car industry, then we speak of state capture, which means that the regulatory process is captured by the interests of specific uh, actors rather than working in the interests of the public as a whole. That is a very interesting description then. But how are the process moving forward then, Leo? Are things going you know, better than expected? There's like a lot of work to do. What is your opinion on that? Well, generally speaking, uh, it's difficult to be all too optimistic about this. So also, if you look at the data, for example, uh, it does look like uh, over the last decades, uh, there's been a lot of uh, deregulation. There's been a lot of, um, let's say, it's become maybe easier for some sectors to uh, advocate for their interests. But of course, at the same time, there's also um, there's also a pushback. There's also lots of initiatives uh, favoring more lobby transparency. And specifically at the EU level, since 2007, we have a voluntary transparency register, uh, which over time has been reformed. And the last commission wanted to introduce a obligatory transparency register. That failed because the Council of the EU didn't want to participate. Uh, and also the European Parliament um, has only made limited concessions on the transparency of lobbyism, which is a bit weird because the European Parliament, a priori, they are directly legitimized by the citizens. So if the citizens don't know whom the parliamentarians are meeting, if the citizens don't know uh, what lobbyist drafted the amendments that Parliamentarian X uh, or parliamentar uh, MEP Y is then introducing into the legislative um, process, then the citizens don't really have the information that they need to make their decision about whom to vote for. And so the European Parliament basically just this uh, very la late last year passed a, a reform whereby at least uh, the committee chairs and the rapporteurs so, and also the shadow, shadow rapporteurs. So all of those MEPs who are following a specific file a specific legislative file on behalf of their group, they will have to um, disclose what lobbyists they're meeting. So it's a small number of MEPs, but quite relevant MEPs. Uh, and this is now a really a, a big change in approach for the European Parliament. That's, that's an improvement. And also the Commission, since 2014, it uh, publishes all of its lobby meetings uh, of the senior level, so for directors general and for members of commissioners' cabinets. Uh, and it actually declines to meet any lobbyists who are not registered on the transparency register. So we see here we have uh, real steps forward. To be honest, the EU institutions are in that regard more transparent than most national governments. And indeed, at the EU level as well, the real trouble spot, the real black hole in the EU decision making is the Council of the EU, uh, where the member states, the, the national governments uh, come together um, in order to uh, adopt laws together with the European Parliament. And the Council of the EU is the institution that's really lagging behind in terms of transparency. Yes, and you do focus especially on legislative transparency in the European Council and the trilogues. you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, indeed. So, uh, first of all, let's uh, clarify a bit the difference between administrative transparency and legislative transparency. Uh, one is really administrative, is more about the decision-making inside the institution. Um, so, of course, then there needs to be a degree of uh, transparency on, on uh, these issues because that regards, you know, all kinds of things with conflicts of interest or with uh, 
maybe uh, insider trading or a favorable treatment or politicized recruitment and so on. But we have a much higher standard uh, in legislative transparency because quite simply all legislative decisions are decisions that will stay with us for decades to come. Once a law is adopted, uh, the citizens and institutions will have to live with it until the law is either repealed or replaced by another one. So that's why we require a much higher transparency standard when it comes to these fundamentally important legislative decisions. And this is not something that we have made up at Transparency International uh, just because we have it in the name. This is something that is in the treaties on European Union. The member states, when they created the EU, have really um, enshrined in the primary law in the treaties basically in the EU's constitution, that for any legislative uh, decisions and meetings, uh, also at the council, you have to actually, um, you have to be extremely transparent, which means for the council, even that they have to live stream uh, the sessions where the ministers take decisions on, on legislative files. Um, and then we can look at the actual practice of the council and ask ourselves if they're mm -hmm. living up to these obligations. Because basically they're just live streaming the ministers' meetings, but the decisions are taken between ambassadors and preparatory bodies, which are of course mm. never live streamed. Let alone they don't even publish uh, the, the summaries. They don't publish um, the uh, agendas for those meetings. So it's really difficult uh, to know, you know the the progress of files from from the working parties, um, and it's also quite unevenly. Um, um, organized. So the European Ombudsman, uh, another EU institution that deals with conflicts of interest, with good governance and so on, they have also looked into this and they have made a number of recommendations uh, into how the Council could streamline their approach so that at least you have a systematic approach to lawmaking in the Council and they have a lot of uh, catching up to do there as well. Indeed, and one thing that we hear over and over regarding European institutions, it's the lack of democracy, of the lack of you know people being involved in the process, even if it is, as you just mentioned, just you know knowing them and knowing the process and being okay with that. So this is a tremendous, uh, uh, tremendous important need, and it is interesting that you just mentioned that things keep getting solved in back rooms and that needs to change. Yeah, so let me maybe give you one more specific example just to really put the finger on where the problem is with the council there. Because um, basically we've heard legislative transparency quite important, treaty-based right. Uh, citizens are not just asking for it, we're entitled to this kind of transparency. And so of course uh, some NGO also came uh, in 2013 to the uh, European uh, Court of Justice and basically sued the council about not handing out specific documents that this NGO had asked for. And in 2014, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union, so the highest legal authority in, in the EU, uh, brought, um, had a judgment where the council uh, lost its case. And basically the, the judges said um, that the council has to uh, identify and, and uh, admit which specific governments, which member states were in favor of specific amendments in uh, the council working groups. So um, they actually have to tell you uh, that it was Portugal that was in favor of this or that idea, or that it was Italy that was blocking uh, the next idea. You have to actually put the identity of the government there. Why? Well, because you can't vote for the council. 
you as a citizen, you can only vote for your own national government. So in order to be able to either um, reinforce or punish your government for the decisions that this government is taking in your name when it is acting in Brussels in the council, the only way to um, have this kind of accountability is if you know specifically what parts of a law, what amendments, what votes and so on, your government was in favor of. Uh, and the only thing the council is publishing is just the votes at the end of the law. But of course, at the end, everybody is more or less happy and, and uh, with, with the final compromise and will vote in favor of it. But this gives you no information about, you know, was your government in favor of paragraph 17? Was your uh, government in favor of this or that provision? Uh, and so the council lost this case and you would think, okay, fair enough. So now we have all of this information. But you would be mistaken, because the council in 2014, in May, the Code Père, the at the ambassador level, they simply decided that they would in future no longer systematically record the identity of uh, governments making these uh, amendments or, or being in favor of this or that paragraph. So that even if you ask for the document, you will not find out which government made those cases, because it's just not written in the document. And that, of course, you know, it's, it's a, a circumvention of our right to legislative transparency that is just uh, difficult to, to comprehend. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we have these issues of uh, democratic deficit and so on, where all of the EU institutions are really making an effort to try and be more transparent and closer to the citizen and so on. But then you have national governments who have only national accountability channels and feel like they don't have to give this kind of transparency at the EU level, especially since this lack of transparency actually helps them in that they can scapegoat the EU and say, oh yeah, all of the cool things are uh, due to the national government and all of the uh, negative developments we can blame on the EU and we know exactly where that leads in the long term. It leads to voter dissatisfaction, it leads to uh, perceptions of a democratic deficit, and ultimately it leads to Brexit. Uh, let's uh stay on here and and that is decisions made in our name i also know that you do study the transparency of the european commission in regards to national governments before you dwell a little bit into that i have a more of a technical question to you because you know people listen to this podcast are from different uh, countries of course do you have like a mean value for transparency on national governments do you account for the differences, like, for example, between Portugal and Germany, between Italy and, and the Netherlands? Well, we did um, publish a study a few years ago, even though it's always very difficult to really compare systematically all 28 member states. Um, we did compile basically the best practices across a number of transparency indicators or lobby transparency uh, access to document regulations and so on. Uh, and so we didn't, we didn't create the perfect member state. We didn't say, you know, this is what we want in terms of transparency. All we did is we compiled the best practices, so really the best in class on, on a number of indicators, uh, so that we uh, got a reasonably transparent uh, national government uh, in, in this hypothetical case, which is composed of, you know, all of the best practices drawn from the continent. And then we um, compared the national governments, all 28, against this hypothetical standard um, and gave it a percentage point. Um, but of course, this is of very limited um, usefulness when, when you're going to uh, try and 
really measure the level of transparency of a, of a national government, given that these are, you know, quite approximative uh, data points. Uh, but what it does tell you is, of course, that the Council of the EU is worse than most national governments. The Commission and the Parliament are better than most national governments. Ireland does extremely well because of recent legislation. France, too, had, has passed recently legislation that really opens up uh, the public institutions to, to the prying eyes of the citizens. Uh, and then there's other countries uh, like, uh, for example, Hungary, where transparency, of course, is uh, intended to be very low so as to not uh, bother the, the ruling class too much while they are busy uh, pillaging the public coffers. All right, Leo, we're getting to the end of our conversation now, but I definitely need to ask you to give us uh, one positive note to finish this conversation. I do know that you're working a lot on potential uh, conflicts of interest on EU institutions. What can you tell us uh, on that particular that it's been uh, the work that you've been doing and some results of it? Yeah, indeed. So it always uh, is, is difficult to attract much attention for these topics about, you know, the, the various codes of conduct by which the members of parliament or the commissioners have to abide by and, and potential conflicts of interest. Um, and even when we uncover conflicts of interest, like on the, on the copyright file, there was, for example, two German lawmakers who were being paid months by months by German public broadcasters and were still being made the rapporteurs who the point people on the file about copyright where uh, they would have an obvious conflict of interest. Then this gets uncovered. The, the media, Politico and Europe um, uh, report about it. And yet nothing happens because the level of attention of, of uh, citizens for, for EU level decision making is just so low that there's no, you know, no, no public outrage, no such sanctioning mechanism. And therefore, what we are really uh, striving for is a more independent mechanism uh, to enforce the codes of conduct and to manage conflicts of interest. Um, and here we have seen quite a bit of progress. So while a few years ago, the institutions would just say, well, there is no conflicts of interest here, you know, nothing to see here, just keep walking. Um, now they have at least accepted that in, an, in a public institution with thousands of employees, of course, there's going to be <laughs> conflicts of interest somewhere. You know, it's, it's just a statistical a fact that 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 simply happens and so what the, the grown-up the adult way of dealing with it is to admit yes of course there will be conflicts of interest and here are the mechanisms that we have in place in order to spot them and then when the conflict of interest is there well then you just have to recruit the person from that file and somebody else does it no? uh, and so you need um, whistleblowing legislation for example which was just passed uh, in uh, march between the, the member states and the European Parliament, which is going to, it's, it's a directive that will make sure you have a um, unified uh, whistleblowing standard across the European Union to protect those people who come forward and report on uh, wrongdoing, on uh, fraud, on uh, conflicts of interest and so on. Uh, so that's uh, a good step. Another uh, step forward was that the EU institutions themselves uh, just in the last few years, introduced whistleblowing uh, rules for their own institutions, even though, for example, in the European Parliament, they are still uh, extremely patchy and we see no whistleblowers coming forward because, indeed, the ones that did come forward have all been fired 
and there has been very little protection for them. So uh, this, you know, that is very, very obvious that the parliament has to improve uh, on that front. And the, the one really positive uh, outlook that I can give you there is that um, after we've been advocating for a while to create basically an independent institution, an EU Essex body that would um, that would look into the existence of these conflicts of interest, or let's say in the case of uh, former president of the European Commission, uh, uh, Manuel Barroso, when he uh, left the commission and then just two years later became the chairman of Goldman Sachs, um, he was being judged by an so-called ad hoc ethics panel, which was composed of people who were put there by the commissioners themselves. So it was the, the commission was put, putting in place uh, ethics people who would judge the former commissioners. And of course, there's a conflict of interest right there because the commissioners themselves are also thinking about what kind of jobs they might want to do after they have left public service. And therefore, they're not going to judge too harshly the people who went before them uh, and, and did the exact same thing. So the, what you need, obviously, is an independent uh, check on those conflicts of interest. And basically, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, president-elect of the European Commission uh, for the next term, on page 21 in her political guidelines, she basically announces that she will want to create such an uh, independent EU ethics body that would be uh, in charge of, uh, of conflicts of interest at all of the EU institutions. So exactly the kind of horizontal uh, body that we were thinking of. And also uh, hundreds of um, members of the European Parliament have signed a uh, declaration, a, an election pledge, where they promised that they too would work in favor of such an EU ethics body being created. So we are actually quite confident that over the next five years in this new legislative term, we will be able to get those institutions to create additional checks that are more credible uh, so that the citizens can also see, well, yeah, uh, this is actually uh, a reasonable way of, of uh, dealing with conflicts of interest. All right, something for us to follow closely then. Okay, um, I want to ask you to come to the podcast again because we just touched the surface in this area in particular and also other interesting things that you would like to share with us. For now, please tell our listeners where they can follow your work and, of course, the work of Transparency International. Oh, thanks a lot. That's, that's a great opportunity. So uh, Transparency, of course, we have our own website, transparency.eu. And otherwise, the main output for these policy wonkish kind of things is usually on Twitter. So it's TI underscore EU. And for me personally, if you want a good mix of Eurozone, EU stuff and nuclear disarmament, that's going to be on Twitter at Leo underscore AXT. All right, I've been talking with Nobel Prize winner and champion of transparency, Leo Hoffman. Haxton, Leo, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm back and before we go to this week's ELF events, I would like to tell you that we are now also on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. And if you like our podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review and that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF during this last week of September on the 27th in Istanbul, Turkey. We have an event also organized by the Friedrich Naumann Stiftung 
which is called Promoting Democratic Citizenship and Democratic Values Through Education. Promoting the ideas of a democratic citizenship and democratic values through education is considered as a process to foster responsible and active citizenship in communities so that citizens understand their rights and duties. This event then aims to address the current challenges and positive developments in Turkish educational system and also to discuss best practices of promoting responsible democratic citizenship through education with some of the experts from Europe. And then from the 30th of September to the 3rd of October, we jump the Atlantic Ocean and go all the way to Washington DC in the United States for hashtag Transatlantic Lab the policy network. Transatlantic bond between Europe and the United States have been a key driver for progress, prosperity and peace through history. Although the recent developments in transatlantic relations have been in some ways a dissolution for both sides of the Atlantic, the solutions to our most pressing social and economic challenges require strong cooperation from both sides. To pursue this goal, hashtag Transatlantic Lab, the policy network, brings together young political professionals and think tankers from both Europe and the United States to work on issues of transatlantic relevance. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs> <laughs>